Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Sunday and I'm talking to one of my favorite people. I know I always get excited about who people I talk to, but that's because I get to talk to some pretty dope people. Um, so this person I met, uh, what in July, I think at the mobilize 88, uh, forum in Ohio. And she traveled all the way from Nevada to, to, to hold space and be present with other progressives, but also to share her story. Um, which is an amazing story, uh, a mother's story, an American story. I don't mean to sound cheesy, but it's all very real and true. <laughs> Thank you, Amy, so much for joining me today. Amy is running for Congress in the, is it the 4th Congressional District? Yes, it's the 4th Congressional District. Awesome. So things have been heating up. I mean, all across the country, we've been watching the way uh, progressive challengers have been putting incumbents uh, on notice that the status quo and same old, same old is, is not good enough anymore. This is beyond Trump resistance. This is really about pushing the need, needle in a meaningful way to actually um, create change that's sustainable in our communities. So Amy, can you just share with us a little bit what inspired, I know many folks have heard the story already. You don't have to give us the whole story, but just what inspired you to run and to step up and lead? You know, I, I really became very politically active um, after I lost uh, my daughter due to um, our profit-driven healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Shalyn, um, you know, she was just 22 years old. She was a really uh, great person, really funny. You would have loved her. <laughs> and she was very independent and driven. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, she went to a local ER with every symptom and risk factor of a blood clot in her leg. She had just driven across country um, for 22 hours. Mm. She had a red swollen leg. Um, Shalyn was also African-American and Caucasian, as well as she had sickle cell trait. She was on birth control, a casual smoker. Um, and all of these things should have been a red flag, you know, when you put them together, that when you, they needed to screen for a blood clot. And uh, I remember I was out of town um, for business. And I got a call from Shalyn. Um, the first call, she was, uh, just arrived at the ER and, uh, they told her, you know, you know, the first thing they asked was, do you have insurance? Mm. And Shalyn, you know, was calling me up to ask me to help her call up my insurance to see if I could get her on. Um, and, and, uh, then she had us calling up, um, well, she had my husband, uh, Davi, calling up TRICARE because he's in the military mm -hmm. and they couldn't put her on. Um, one of the reasons they gave us was that she, you know, was between the ages of 21 and 23. Mm -hmm. And as she had just moved into Las Vegas, she had not, she had enrolled in school, but had not started. And since the okay. semester started, she would not be covered. They're not covered the same way we are under the ACA. Military right. Okay. And, uh, 
And she had just, we were talking within three days of her moving there. She had insurance on her own in, in uh, Missouri. Um, so basically she said no, and that, that sealed her fate. Mm. You know, they told her it's going to be very expensive. You know, you can leave now, you know, and it won't cost you anything. But she was like, no, there's something really wrong with my leg. You know, the, the next call that I got from her was um, she was in the back and she was crying. And I'm like, what's going on, Shalane? And she's like, you know, Mommy, they're not helping me. And I still remember that. That really sticks in my head. Mm -hmm. The desperation and, and the and just she was humiliated. Um, and I told her, I said, Shalane, you must not be telling them. And she told me, you know, hey, I want to get an MRI or and something for the pain. I have 8 out of 10 pain. I, I really am in a lot of pain. Um, and I know I don't have a broken leg. That's all they were going to do for was an x-ray. And... They told her, go get insurance and see a specialist. We're not a doctor's office. You know, my daughter had a blood clot in her leg, and unbeknownst to us, you know, and she had to go back to Kansas City to finalize some things for her move. And, um, you know, the, the, next, the, the call I got from her father after she, the night after she landed, um, I've never heard Roscoe sound the way he did. And, you know, he was panicked, and he's like, she's coding, and... And they got her heart started, but they said something, she's coding. I don't understand. She's coding. And I'm like, what do you mean she's coding? Like, she's 22, you know? Right. It couldn't even, like, I couldn't wrap my hands or my head around that, you know? Like, this, my daughter was healthy and, 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 you know, doing all the things she's supposed to be doing. What do you mean she's coding? And, um, you know, I flew out there. I was communicating with my sister via the, you know, um, airplane internet. And the, the, I remember when I got off the plane, all, all I could say was, is she, is she dead? Is my daughter still alive? And I collapsed. That was the beginning of a nightmare for me. And, you know, when I walked into the room and I saw my daughter, who was this funny, beautiful, loving person, right. unintimated, and her eyes were flooded over every time she would overbreathe her, her breathing tube because she still had a little bit of brain activity at this point. All I could do was hold her hand, and I would just tell her, please, she would fight. You know, fight, baby, fight. Don't, don't give in to this. you got too much to live for. Fight. And I would just, I mean, as much as I could, I was in there telling her, fight. You know, I was hoping that I would see some reaction. I would be staring at the machines, you know, um, and they just told me, you know, she coded and it took him 59 minutes to stabilize her. And there was too much damage. She eventually lost all brain activity. And um, she was an organ donor, but there was too much damage to her main organs. So she was only able to donate, like, her bones and things of that sort. So she was able to pass in my arms. And I remember as she was passing, you know, I was screaming out to God, like, please, just take me. Please let her live, you know. God, just take me. This is too much. Like I, I've lived enough, you know. Just, just don't let her die. And as she was past taking her last breath, um, I knew at this point because my sister was an RN that there was something really wrong here, and that uh, she had not received the care she was entitled to, and that she should have received. And uh, I whispered to her, "You will not have died in vain. I promise you, Shalane." No parent should have to go through that. No loved one. 
it's inhumane and it's unnecessary. And in this great country, we should not be having people die from something so treatable as a blood clot. We're talking about medications, you know, that's it. You know, possibly putting in a, you know, a screen, you know, to stop it from moving to our heart. We're talking about a couple thousand dollars. And then by contrast, it costs the American American taxpayers almost $500,000 for Shalene to die. That is reality for many people in this country with our profit-driven healthcare system. Mm-hmm. That's what spurred me into action. Um, I know, about, you know, I know I, it, the more I got in the community and the more I thought about some of my past and, and things I had went through, you know, I've been a single mother, I'm WIC and Medicaid and food stamps, we've been homeless. You know, I struggled. I was the first in my, my family to graduate from college and all the struggle my children and I went through and then when I started getting out of the community as well and hearing all the people falling through the cracks in this country, I could not close my eyes once they were open and pretend like I hadn't seen what I had saw. And, uh, you know, that is what drives me. I can't save Shalin, but the people that still need help, the people out there hurting, people still in pain, is what drives me to continue on in politics. Right. So thinking about education, um, um, healthcare education, healthcare obviously, uh, and access and, and Medicare for all, you know, Medicaid expansion, these are obviously, you know, major important issues that not only have you been championing because of your personal experience, but because like you said, the very real need um, in the surrounding community as well as the nation as a whole, but what are some of the other issues that are, you know, present that you're seeing um, the people in the district really resonating with or, or wanting, you know, change around? You know, one of the biggest things is, is, is just jobs, being able to provide for their family adequately. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to ensure that we have a, a living wage. Um, you know, right now the, the, the amount that that's on the table is $15 an hour, but it's, right. they're talking about doing it in eight years. Um, we need a livable wage now. People are working multiple jobs and still not even be able to provide adequately for their family. You know, if you work 40 hours a week, it should be your way out of poverty, not the chains that bind you to it. You know, this is so important. There's people that are, are I cannot find a job. We have, you know, very high, um, you know, unemployment rate here. Um, you know, we need to be, one of, so one of the things I would like to do is, is to, you know, first off, we need, I would like to see a federal jobs guarantee. We have all over the place, you know, crumbling infrastructure. We have people ready and willing to work. And we need to invest back into our, our, just into our people and into our infrastructure in this country, including, you know, moving towards um, green energy and and developing that infrastructure and becoming a leader um, in the world on green energy technology. Um, That's really important. We have a lot of people here that are homeless in in Las Vegas. A lot of vets are homeless here. We need to be ensuring that when we have some of the, the lowest rates of um, affordable housing here in, in uh, Nevada, we need to be ensuring that we're uh, getting affordable housing and taking care of people so they have a roof over their head and food on their table. Um, you know, we also have a big community of dreamers. We need to ensure that we're fighting for a clean, you know, um, dreamers uh, act and making sure that we have 
uh, a humane pathway towards citizenship. So there, these are just a few, and they're not so unique to the rest of the United States either. Right. Um, they are really big here in Nevada. Well, when you're when you're when you're talking about affordable housing, homelessness, uh, and dreamers, I mean those are issues we have here in Atlanta as well, and in, in Georgia as a whole. You know, Georgia does have a. There are certain areas in Georgia that do have you know, an increased um, population, uh, Latino immigrant population. We do have issues with, you know, making sure that the rights of undocumented folks are protected. So I, I think what you're touching on is something that is of concern, you know, not just in your district, but of course the nation as a whole. We need people like you in Congress who are gonna be willing to actually address, you know, issues affecting the everyday average person um, head on. Right, and you know, if you look at this, the, a lot of these things, if we start picking them apart, mm -hmm. they're intersectional. So, you know, if you if you cannot make a living for your family and you have to be at work, I mean, and you're working multiple jobs just to put the food on, on the table, if you even if you had health insurance, you probably would be less likely to take off, you know, and risk your job or risk the income to go get medical treatment you right. so badly need. So, you know, we... One of the things I always see is that, you know, we, we see a lot of politicians that will really just, you know, fight for one or a couple of issues and think, you know, I've solved this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There, it, it's, it's not just a one-issue problem. Right. We are not taking care of our people in this country. We are not being each other's keepers. And we have to really start looking at this, that the problems that are facing the everyday working, you know, average American, the working class, the 99%, we need to start looking at that holistically and attacking it from all different angles and really putting a lot of legislation in place that addresses these on a more, you know, um, holistic, uh, in, a, more, in a more holistic way. Um, and so that's why I have a pretty extensive, um, you know, uh, list of issues that I'm working on. My platform is pretty, pretty big. Right. Like, and I like what you were saying in terms of looking at things in a very holistic way, right? Because we do have these issues that again are affecting families and we go back to healthcare because I really think, you know, healthcare is something that touches on so many other areas because even when we look at access to healthcare and access to affordable healthcare, if you're talking about housing, you're talking about education, I mean, when you look at these different indicators, they do, you know, have certain predictors when we're talking about people's health and their ability and access to getting what they need. And then also, I think when we talk about healthcare, we look at the different you know, we think about Democrats and, and, and progressives and the different groups, right, and different interests that we're trying to pull together around issues. Healthcare is something that I think we can get folks to universally, for the most part, we can get folks to universally agree upon is, is, is something that we need to be putting time and energy into. Now, what plan exactly we follow, you know, that always comes up to some debate, but it seems like healthcare, because I think back again, reflecting here, when you think about healthcare, and possibly you've all had the same experience in Nevada, you know, when you think about, you know, uh, here in Atlanta, we have, you know, the Grady Hospital System, which you can get a Grady card, but you're still gonna be sitting in the, the ER, you know, area for treatment if it's outside of clinic times, for I sat in the ER one day with my 20-year-old my sister for 14 hours. She has juvenile idiopathic um, arthritis. It's similar to rheumatoid arthritis. 
we sat there. She was having a flare-up. We sat in the, in the ER for 14 hours for her to get a Motrin and uh, make sure you see a, neuro, uh, a rheumatologist. She finally, two months later, gets to see her, neuro, her rheumatologist, and she she texts me crying um, that we have to figure out a way to get her better health insurance because the rheumatologist that she was assigned to is probably also someone who's overburdened, has a huge you know caseload in terms of clients, and really didn't do much for her either because they said that you know it's not that bad for you right now. But she still right. is 20 years old. She still is a very active student and works and has to be engaged. And having a flare-up, even if it's not as bad as the 55-year-old maybe who has you know arthritis and flare-ups and things like that, like it's still a problem for her. And then conversely, you know, we have or you compare that to rural areas where we've seen hospital closures and and, and other ex issues of access due to our state's failure to expand Medicaid, for example. So it seems like healthcare is something that could really um, you know, Paula Jean Swearingen loves to use the hashtag unite our fight. And it seems like healthcare is one of those issues that can really unite us in a way that we can bring together the, a broad-based coalition of people to get the work done that maybe other issues might not necessarily, you know, be able to do. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, even with the exchange, we have, we, you know, Nevada thankfully did um, do Medicaid expansion. Right. But even with that, we have a huge problem in, in the worlds here in Nevada. That we have a lot of our hospitals, um, you know, uh, shutting down. We also have we we have a lot of um, people that are not able to even get insurance now because the main um, carriers of insurance now have left the exchange. So you know, we look at these things and we look at most issues. You know, there's one common element in all of them. It's the profit motive. Right. That is the crux and the core of what is wrong in our system because, you know, no matter what's behind your name, most of us in this country would agree on the basic things of getting jobs going, making sure we have health coverage, you know, ensuring that our families were able to provide for our families, that we have safe, you know, housing and affordable housing. These are all issues that affect all of us universally. And, you know, the one thing that keeps getting in the way is, well, how do we help people out when we have to make sure we're, we're, we're going after that almighty dollar? And that is what the crux and the, and the whole problem with our system is that right now everything is driven by money and profits. And there's some things that, you know, profits don't belong in. And it surely should not be the top issue when we're talking about things that affect everyday Americans Absolutely. and their lives. Absolutely. So as we're looking forward towards your primary and your race, I know, um, you know, Shaz and Shannon was just telling me about some of the activities you guys have going on today. Like, how is your campaign, like, really digging in on the ground and, and building what it takes to win in your district? What, what are some of the things you guys are working on and doing um, that kind of make you stand out from the opposition? We're right in the heart of, heart of the community here. Um, we are out there right now. Um, doing a free community breakfast and, uh, you know, really talking to some of the people in, in our, in our um, area that are falling through the cracks that need the, the most assistance and really talking about some of the hurdles that they're having to overcome and, and, and understanding more in depth of why we're having, um, these, these, these people that are not able to find housing and food and, um, and hearing it from their from their perspective and what the struggles they've gone through, because I think that really gives us a unique understanding of what are the barriers 
you know, I know what the barriers were for me, right. but every one of us is different, right? And there has to, and usually there's a commonality, and especially, and it might be unique to your district. It might be unique in your state of why, you know, people are falling through the cracks, but there is, there's usually an, an underlying that's, you know, universally, you know, the same across this nation. Right. Um, we're also, we're already knocking doors. We've knocked over almost 3,000 doors. Nice. We're starting phone banking. We are showing up at the events. We are out there in full force. We have a team of volunteers and um, from across the nation, actually. And people are phone banking for us already, um, even from outside the state. So we, we have a lot of support and momentum in this campaign. And we see that just growing and growing. And so we're really excited um, to, to really be out there talking about the issues with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's amazing, you know, um, people who are running for office seem to be following suit, <laughs> you know, on the issues. Right. So we're really pushing that envelope and, and really being the leaders in this race and making sure that we're setting the tone for the issues that we're talking about. Right. Now, and thinking about, again, still thinking about, because, you know, there we, we've seen this increase in folks like you who are, you know, that, that, that average person who had an issue that was passionate to them and they decided to step up, like, you know what, I'm going to put my hat in the ring, I'm going to step up. What are some of the lessons maybe that you've learned through this process of running for office? Because it's also a very foreign animal, right? Jumping into politics, it's, yes. it's one thing to support a candidate and to vote. It's a completely different thing to have to run a campaign and, and be the candidate and, and, and encourage people to come and vote, not just vote, but vote for you specifically and endorse and support your ideas. So what are some of the takeaways maybe you've had from this process as you've been engaging it so far? I think the first thing is to be kind to yourself. Mm. If you're not a polished, you know, um, politician, you know, you can easily try to care or try to be like other um, people that are running and that have, you know, in politics for a while. And you need to be yourself and stay true to your values. Um, one of the hardest lessons for me was to learn how to have a tough skin. And okay. Not so much when it comes to me. I'm, I'm used to that. I mean, I was in business for many years, so, you know, that that really doesn't bother me. But they they will make comments about um, your family. Right. Um, I, some horrible things said about my daughter, Shalyn. Um, and, you know, you have to remember, you know, remember your why. That's probably the most important takeaway. Because as you go through this, each of our journeys will be different. But I always have to remember my why because it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's a lot out of you financially, mentally, emotionally, physically. And as you go through this process, you know, you can get hung up in the ups and downs of, of, of your race. But you always need to remember the why that you're, you're doing what you're doing. Right. And for me, why is very clear. And whenever I feel like it's just too much or, you know, I, I don't know, this is, this is just so overwhelming, <laughs> you know, at times to be um, managing everything. And especially when you're not taking money from corporations. So you have to do like 10 times the amount of work that a typical campaign would, right? Because you have to wear a lot of hats and do a lot of things within the campaign that when you have a lot of corporate money flowing in, you can, you know, delegate those duties out. I just always make sure I remind myself what's at stake and what's at stake not only for the people in this district, but across this nation, because mm-hmm. there are a lot of people counting on us, the progressive uh, candidates 
to pull through this and be successful and start truly representing the people of this country. Right. So I, I, I like that too, right? Like I like how you started about being basically, I mean, we always say self-care, right? And people kind of ha 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 self-care. But, but I, I think when you talk about having basically, it sounds like having a strong foundation and sense of purpose. And like you said, know your why and be able to stay mindful of your why, I think is really good advice as well, because it is really easy, particularly in this space where there is so much focus on challenging the status quo. You can sometimes get caught up with being, with chasing, you know, holding other folks accountable that you aren't really, not you, but like people are not well, very well defined in themselves and why they're what their purpose is and why they're doing something and so i do really think that that's that's really strong advice the other thing i was just thinking when i'm listening to you talk because this is very inside outside you know ball we've seen happening with progressives over the past um almost three years now you know by the time we get into this summer it'll be three years since you know kind of the bernie progressive wave which i still say is really amalgamation or, or a coalition of other you know movement waves we've been seeing since uh, post Iraq war protests, like, but we've seen this explosion in folks and groups and grass -led, grassroots led opportunity in the last several years. What are some of the things you're thinking as you're running as a Democrat, um, you know, but it's a party and I don't want to assume how they've been towards you in Nevada, but it's a party that we've seen across the country. We've seen a real reluctance to embrace progressive ideas more so than a soundbite here or there and to embrace candidates. Um, who are willing to rise up, you know, and challenge the status quo, even if that means challenging and critiquing other Democrats. How do you see, you know, our ability to move forward considering those conditions? And what has your experience been um, working within the Nevada system, the no Nevada Democratic Party so far? You know, um, one of the things that I, I always make sure that I keep in mind, and I have made this like from the beginning, this has been so important to me, is that regardless of what they say or do, I am going to fight for the people that need it the most. I'm going to stick to the issues. Right now, I know what I'm up against. And I think most progressive candidates are either they know or they're beginning to realize <laughs> that it's not so much the party as it is the money that's backing the parties, Ooh, okay. right? This is across party lines. Right. They're fighting huge amounts of money that shows up in the forms of donations, lobbyists. You know, this is what is what we're truly up against. We're up against corporate America. We're up against we're up against the one percent, the people that are actually funding all of this, mm -hmm. and. They are using the political systems in order to gain more wealth. Um, you know, I actually saw this in Ron Chomsky. He really explains it a lot better than I do, actually. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that the, the, it's, it's almost like a continuous circle, if you, if you can just visualize this, that we have, you know, um, you know corporate, corporate America, the, the wealthy, that are constantly pouring money into politicians, which then, you know, uh, put out legislation that makes them more wealthy, so then they can pour mon more money into politics, and then more legislation, and it's this vicious circle. So when we're actually out there, you know, what we're actually fighting against is is the corruption 
that has seeped into our, our political parties and our and our um, government mm-hmm. by extension. Mm-hmm. You know, right now, our laws, I think it's typical Americans, all of us can look around and there's common sense laws. I mean, even if we're speaking about gun safety. Right. You know, 96% of the Americans, from the last poll I heard of, are, are totally in alignment with having tougher background checks and some simple common sense gun safety uh, legislation. But yet, we can't get it done. Right. I mean, and, you know, so really think about that. Why, why is that? I mean, it's, you, you, you have the support of all, you know, the vast majority of Americans are all the constituents across party lines. But yet we can get nothing done. Right, right, absolutely. And I mean, you touch on a really strong point, and I appreciate that reframing of my question in terms of it's, it's we're actually up against the money, you know, um, that is behind some of these, some of the, the backlash reasons or some of the reluctance, like I said, to, to, to really yeah. push forward on certain issues. We see that recently this week, particularly here in Georgia, with Republicans up in arms about Delta um, and, I, and, and the NRA discount being rescinded, which was when, when the data came out about how many members of the NRA actually used the Delta discount, it was 13. Republicans threw a hissy fit over a tantrum and, you know, possibly, you know, had issues of unethical, uh, you know, stuff with the way they, uh, you know, decided to renegotiate or I guess undo a previously negotiated tax cut, you know, over 13 NRA members who may or may not even live in Georgia um, in terms of using Delta. And it, it, that, that literally had nothing to do with anyone here stateside, had nothing to do with any real impetus or push locally, but there definitely was this understanding that there is an appeasement of certain donors and certain interests um, watching all of that unfold over the past week. And so I think your, your comment about the special interest funding and donations and just basically, you know, post Citizens United Unlimited. I mean, we have we have Citizens United, and then we have um, McCutcheon v. FEC, which completely, you know, smashed the the aggregate limits on on donations. So those between those two cases, um, I think, has really caused like so many problems. When we're talking about money in our elections and just really matters of fundamental fairness, right? In, in politics, I think right. have been exacerbated even more. So I really appreciate you kind of segueing into that point like that as well. So no corporate money. So yeah. how fundraising and money is something that is really crucial to candidates in running. Um, how are you, how are you guys doing with, what are you doing? Because you, since you're not getting the fat checks written, you know, it takes creative strategy, it seems like, to still be able to run a campaign without getting that those same sources. Well, we definitely are. I mean, it takes a lot of work. And that's mm-hmm. why I was saying earlier, you know, it, you be prepared to work a lot harder than a typical candidate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we've had over um, 5,000 individual contributions to date. And... We are getting our message out there. Um, I am constantly out talking to people. We're calling up people and, and talking to them about what matters to them most. Um, and, you know, when you have a message and a why that's strong enough, you know, behind, like backing your run for office, right? People, people are ready. They're ready for change. And they're ready to be invested in your campaign. And it can be done. And I remember that you're going to love this. We had um, one of the top political um, report commentators out here had was on NPR and had said on air they were asking about the race, my particular district race. 
And he had said, yeah, well, then there's Amy for the people. I just can't, I can't even say her name. She's so insignificant. <laughs> I can't even say her name. Progressives can't win because they, you cannot run a race without corporate money. Mm-hmm. Right. Two weeks later, he was back on NPR and it was after the FEC filing. And at that point I had almost 4,000 individual donations. Mm-hmm. $12.67 a donation. And, um, and we had raised, uh, you know, substantial amount. And he said, well, you know, uh, I have to say, Amy surprised me. And, you know, one thing Democrats don't like is a surprise. So mm-hmm. we'll have to be watching this race. <laughs> so, you know, we have, um, when you're running a grassroots campaign, anybody's thinking about it, and that, that's, this is a really good question. You know, I, I'm in, I'm right now in historic West Side, Las Vegas. Okay. Um, we are in a place that is where the people, um, you know, we have a really dense population of people that are in the district. And um, we, we are very um, conservative with how we use the funds that we receive. And uh, we, you know, most of our furniture was donated. You know, we go down this, this road, right? Where, you know, we're not offering, we're not opening up a campaign office in a nice, you know, swanky office building and buying all new furniture. We're we are grassroots. Not only that, in managing that side of it, we have hundreds of people who are volunteering. That is the difference. I have the people behind me, and uh, that's what makes a difference, and that's what makes a campaign viable is being able to have um, the, the power of the people behind your camera. No, I absolutely appreciate that because it is something that definitely um, people feel like they can't, like they cannot actually um, do, right? Because the cost, because when we hear the price tag on a congressional oh, race um, and it's just like, wow, really? Um, and well, and so, that much doesn't guarantee that you're going to win. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've seen cases when people, I mean, we look at the presidential election, right? Um, you know, right. almost a billion dollars raised and it still, it still did not, um, yield a, a successful result. So, so you need enough money obviously to run and do what you need to do, but at the same time, you you can't rely on the fact that you have the most money or but I just know that that price tag oftentimes is very daunting to people when they're thinking about can I even do this it's like well they say you know it costs this much to run this race so that that already seems prohibitive to some people who might enter right. enter but people like you who are doing it and you know you might be raising a fraction of what they say is needed but you're still raising good money and you're finding other resources and ways to be able to you know, I mean, really, I think it makes you part of the community that you're seeking to serve when they're kind of a part of really doing this, it seems like. Yeah, it is true. And that's and that actually gives us an advantage. We 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 aren't, you know, going out and and, uh, you know, courting a bunch of really high high donors. We're out in the community talking to people. We we are we are trying to earn their vote in that twenty seven or whatever amount of money a donation that they're what they're able to give. We're out there having we're earning it. We are out there talking about the issues, getting their feedback. You know, actually just talking about some of the struggles and and seeing if we uh, you know need to also be 
um, looking at other issues to to put on the platform. These are all things that are, are really important when you're running, and it keeps you in touch with the base. And I've always said, you know, the way I run this 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 campaign is it's, it's not the Amy show. Right. All of us. It's it's all of us. We're all in this together. And I want to continue that even when I get into Congress. You know, we need to have we need to have open door policies. We need to be make sure we're having monthly town halls with the pe- with people in our in our um, in our districts mm-hmm. and hearing back, getting feedback, being connected to the community. Because once you lose that connection with the community, I would, I would imagine that it would be very easy um, to lose sight of what the needs are of your community and uh, to really be on agendas that may not be in their best interest. Right. Right. No, I think that's really, really great way of thinking about it and a really great framing too. I mean, because I, you know, we talk about being a public servant, it's not supposed to be about, you know, you personally (laughs) and, and, and serving the public. Right. So I appreciate that. So Amy, any final thoughts as we wrap up this afternoon? You know, I would encourage everyone to get involved in this election season. You know, there are a ton of um, different uh, progressive candidates across this nation running. Right. Um, You know, get out there and get involved. And, you know, you can also be involved personally and contribute. You know, no matter what the, whatever, you know, measure that you can contribute to the progressive movement or to have a voice in issues that have affected your life, all of us have a voice, no matter what the tragedy or what you've been through. You have a voice and you have a seat at that table. Get out there and be heard. Um, and, you know, if you want to hear more about my campaign, uh, please feel free to reach out to me. You know, you can volunteer, like, share, donate at um, Amy, the number four, the people dot com. Awesome. Well, you guys heard that. Please definitely go check out Amy for the people. Amy's awesome. Not just because I like Amy and I've met Amy and I've hugged Amy, but because we need real people, you know, committed to doing good work. Um, and we need people who are going to be grounded and responsible to the communities that put them in office, right? Because we have quite a few decent people, good people who do get elected and go to office. But unfortunately, the corrupting influence of money or just not being held accountable to do what they said they were going to do happens. Um, and, and, and people like Amy are, are starting off by saying, I'm accountable to you. Um, so, Amy, thank you so much for, for joining me on this Sunday. I'm really excited to hear about what you guys have going on. A free breakfast and community outreach sounds dope. Um, wish yeah. I still got to find my way out to Vegas. <laughs> but We're here. Really excited you to know, hear anybody can come out and knock doors out here. We'll make sure you got a place to stay. Oh, where, else you, where else would be that much fun as, as Vegas? Come out <laughs> when is your, oh, I forgot to ask you. When is your primary? Uh, it's June 12th. Okay. Okay. So we're, we're, you know, a little over 90 days out. Uh, We got a lot of work ahead of us. So we're, we're looking forward to it and, uh, and getting out there and knocking on doors and making phone calls. Awesome. Well, I am looking forward to continuing to follow what's going on with the campaign. Folks definitely go check Amy out, give her a like, share, contribute to the work that's being done. If you can phone bank or volunteer in any other way, do what you can, however you can, every little bit helps. All right. Thank you guys. Peace. Thank you. Yeah. Like, so tell me what motivated you to kind of jump out there and get involved? Like, how did you end up saying, hey, I'm not that I just want to run. I'm going to run. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, it was never in the plan. I can definitely <laughs> say that. I actually kind of what prompted this whole process was that I was nominated uh, to run with brand new Congress. And I, I mean, at the time, like literally when I got the call, I was actually at Standing Rock. And so um, a little bit about my background. I have worked with nonprofits. I've worked as an educator. I've worked in activism. I did some organizing in the South Bronx for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, way, way back in the day, I did have experience in uh, working in a constituent office for the late Senator Kennedy. I did some kind of immigration work for him. Um, but I mean, I never really thought that elected office was something that was ever really in the cards for me because I think like a lot of people felt it's very much controlled by access, by who has access to wealth, who has access to dynastic power and certain influential social connections. And as a girl from the Bronx, I knew that I had none of those things and that I did not want to just spend decades of my life trying to horse trade until maybe someday um, I, I would you know, have a shot at that. I, I, that wasn't something that I really saw for myself. And so I really just started working directly with my community. And uh, so my family's from the Bronx. My father was born in the, in the Bronx. I was born in the Bronx. My grandmother, um, his mother came to the Bronx from Puerto Rico. And on my mom's side, my mom was born in PR and came and came here after my parents got married. And so I was really working directly with communities. I was, um, you know, doing doing that more grassroots level work. And I was really working with kids. But um, I think when the 2016 election came about, a lot of us had, I think, written off electoral politics, and we realized that we couldn't afford to do that anymore. And when I saw Bernie Sanders running, I really felt like this was a genuine opportunity for working class Americans to have real ownership over their politics again. And so I organized the South Bronx for Bernie. After the election, um, I started just meeting with more organizers across the country. And I went to Flint, Michigan, and I met with some community organizers there. I stopped in Ohio, just having conversations with people. Um, and, and we ultimately ended up at Standing Rock. And it was at Standing Rock uh, the day after I got out um, that I received this call from brand new Congress. And I think kind of at that time, especially coming out of that experience, really seeing how corporations had literally militarized themselves against American citizens. Mm -hmm. um, I really kind of felt like we were at a, a very, we we're kind of at a crisis point in our country. And, um, and when I look at the context of our race, who I am, as opposed to who my opponent is, as opposed to who our community consists of, um, it felt like a really necessary race. It really felt like the right thing to do. And so um, I said, yes. And we kind of went through a whole process and I put my hat in the ring and it's been a really thrilling experience. Um, this is the first primary that our community has had in 16 years. And so um, I think people are really kind of waking up to our democracy and our, and really learning about who our representation is. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just wanted to, to go back to something that you said that actually resonated with me a lot as well going into the prior um, cycle. The idea that the, the the way Bernie Sanders was talking about approaching politics and his campaign seemed to me, I agree with you, seemed to me as a, a way that working class as marginalized communities could re reassert ourselves or assert ourselves in a in, in the political you know landscape in a way that we had never really been able to completely achieve before um mm-hmm. and, and and it was really motivating and i despite my you know my criticisms of their in their different areas and i always tell people i critique i know my critique can be harsh sometimes but i do it out of love sincerely yeah is there is this national wave of excitement and energy and activists and i too have met a lot of people all over the place you know all over the country connected with folks and and i love listening to what people are doing and how they came to this moment they're in whether they're organizing you know particular actions or issues whether they're running for office and 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 and, and just seeing like how their own personal background influences all of that and and it's cool to hear you know other particularly other women of color have that same kind of experience and connection that i did as well um yeah so very cool. You got nominated. People, people, real recognizes real. Saw your leadership. <laughs> <laughs> so how has it been so far? You know, as a candidate, you know, working with brand new Congress, but also working within the, you know, the New York Democratic political machine itself. Yeah, um, it's it's been pretty exciting because I feel like we've been really paving our own path mm-hmm. um, here. So knowing that, knowing how New York City politics operates, and a lot of people, I think sometimes there's this national perception of New York as a progressive state, but it's not at all. And um, we have some of the worst rates of voter suppression in the country. In 2016, we had the second lowest primary turnout, second only to Louisiana. Um, And that was largely due to very draconian voter suppression laws that we have here on the books in New York. It doesn't look like kind of the, the, it doesn't take on like the same Jim Crow-esque like aesthetic that more Southern states have, but we have it here just in different ways. We have a party switch deadline that is a full, almost a full year before the actual primary. So you have to be registered as a Democrat before there are even any candidates in the race in the state of New York in order to vote in a primary. Um, along with a whole slew of other other obstructions to the ballot, obstructions to voting and things like that. We're one of the only states that is not early voting, absentee. Uh, like we have something known as no excuse absentee. So you have to like kind of sign an affidavit and all this type of crazy stuff. And so um, not only that, but my opponent is not just a congressman. He's the chairman of the Queens Democratic Party. So it's kind of mm. like... It's it's kind of like if a Democratic candidate, Bernie or Hillary or whomever, was the literal chair of the DNC while they were running for president. And oh, that's wow. kind of the situation. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of the situation that we have here in New York. That's how um, that is how entrenched the machine is. And literally positions that are designed to be held by two or three different individuals are all basically coalesced and concentrated into one person. And so I knew kind of going into it that if my opponent was the literal chair of the party, then 
than the traditional roots like more established democratic clubs and things like that mm-hmm. are kind of like barking up the wrong tree. And, um, and that I would be, you know, you kind of have to, especially, you know, as a woman of color, you, you recognize when you're walking into an environment, a biased environment, um, even if it's subconsciously biased or consciously biased. And so kind of when I started off this campaign, I wanted to recognize where the real power was, where the real grassroots power was. And I know, and it really felt like right now in this moment, the real grassroots power in New York City is not in the established Democratic Party. It's kind of in the fringes because Mm -hmm. when an establishment seeks to protect itself for so long, eventually it starts to exclude more people than it has included. And so all of those excluded people lack a voice. And so what we kind of started doing was instead of, um, instead of knocking on every single democratic club door, first thing, we just started knocking on the doors of local organizers, local um yeah, local activist groups. And that helped us in so many ways because what we're able to do is is organize around issues first and then organize around power later. And what that kind of allows us to do is is bring a really broad grassroots, real issue-based uh, coalition together of people that um, that usually wouldn't be coming together in in their usual spaces. So, um, yes, like one of the first things that we started reaching out to was groups like Black Lives Matter and Muslims for Progress and environmental organizations and saying, okay, now let's hand over the keys and let's let's let you guys write the policy. And that I think is like what the Democratic Party should be doing, but it isn't. And so we just kind of started doing this novel thing ourselves, really, because kind of as an organizer, sometimes the most frustrating things is that you don't feel like the real solutions are being advocated for the policy level. And so we just started going directly to local community organizers. And I didn't even bother with Democratic clubs for a very, very, very long time because it kind of felt like a waste of time. Um, And so that's kind of how we first started approaching this whole thing. And it's been very, very successful because we've been able to campaign without a filter. We've been able to campaign without being hamstrung by certain relationships and this, that, and the other. So us being able to really speak unapologetically um, about the truth on many of these issues especially in a blue state where you're not supposed to talk about the things that are wrong. Um, it's been, it, it's really been very successful for us. Even though it makes sense, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. Like what you're saying about how, you know, when you have like entrenched power and people are not provided access and people just, well, the powers that be just withdraw further and further into themselves. It seems like, well, duh, people are going to eventually rise up. But I really feel like we have to keep explaining and explaining, you know, as much as possible and just continue to talk to folks, right? About the possibility and the opportunity. And it really, I mean, 
you know, I had a friend who's been in politics for you know a long time say to me like, oh, that's kind of naive. But but no, I really don't think it's naive. I really think if 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 we look, when we look out turnout, when we look at turnout in, in district mm-hmm. across the country, when we look at particularly when it's an off cycle, right? Like when it's a non presidential cycle, we see mm-hmm. low turnout. When we look at communities like ours, right? Like you know, we look at our communities and we tend to have lower turnout, or people will vote for the person they know. That's not necessarily the person they want, but right. like, uh, that's who I know. And then you know, they may get surprised that they ever even find out someone else is even running. But that's why it's so important to invest in conversation, invest in the mm-hmm. people themselves, versus continuing to pay these 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 this oath of fealty to an institution that has been failing us for decades at this point. Um, so what are some yeah. of your issues that that are that are coming up across, you know, your district and, 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 and that you're, you're seeing people talking about um, as you're running for office? Yeah, well, our district is very, very unique um, and it's really diverse in uh, in a large amount of ways. So our district is about 70 percent people of color. And uh, we've actually never had a person of color represent us in American history. So there's real. Yes. Yes. It's wild. We've we've had Democratic representation for decades and we've never had a person of color represent us. The district is half in the Bronx. It's half in the Queen. It's half in Queens. And it also covers Rikers Island. And we don't have a really strong champion on any of these issues. I like our our district itself is such a safely democratic seat about it's about 85% registered democrats it's almost like another 7 to 10% independent and unaffiliated voters and it's like less than 10% republican and um and so one of the cases that i make here is like we're one of the safest democratic seats in the country and we represent some of the most um, vulnerable populations in America, but not only the most vulnerable, but also it's a very rich fabric, very diverse fabric. We're about half immigrant, um, 60% Latino, 40% primarily Spanish speaking, but we are also home to Jackson Heights, which is like the most diverse neighborhood in the world. You know, over a hundred languages are spoken here. It's, um, it's an, it's, it's broad on so many levels. We also have heavily concentrated urban areas as well as uh, neighborhoods with home ownership. Median income is like $47,000 a year. And so there's so many different pieces here. And, um, and basically what, what we're really seeing is, is that these issues, like they could be advocated for, and we could really be leading the country in in discourse on these issues because if there's any um if if there's really any district or any representation that can take the lead on immigration reform and and be that voice that will take principled stances that would be risky in other districts it would be New York 14, which is which is where I'm running. Same thing on issues of prison abolition and and so and ending the war on drugs, legalizing cannabis. Like we could have been leading the country um, for years on these issues, and we haven't because our current representation takes over three million a year from the usual suspects: pharmaceutical corporations, private equity groups, luxury real estate developers, and um, 
And to me, it's just been like a very wasted opportunity for the whole country, really, to be having more progressive conversation. Um, so, so, So in terms of some of the issues that we've been really hearing a lot about, it really depends on what neighborhood that we're in. Immigration is a very strong issue that we discuss a lot, like what a, a just immigration um, policy would look like or could look like. We talk about criminal justice reform a lot. Um, we also, and then it's also like some of these basic bread and butter issues that everyone's very concerned with: uh, single payer health care, Medicare for all, education, tuition free college, addressing student debt. Um, these are these are those are like the the fundamental issues of opportunity that I think many of our residents are concerned with, in addition to keeping Social Security safe and some of those other um, kind of more standard, more standard issues. And people act like this is some like there's some secret sauce or some secret magical recipe to, to, to really engaging and reaching people to vote for our candidates. And what we need are candidates like you who are talking about the issues that matter to our families, to matter to our communities across the board, not paying us look right before it's time to get the vote, but really taking the time to, to come down or just just walk with us on our level. Right. Or be from our level. <laughs> and yeah, who comes yeah. In superficially at the very end. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, that, like, you bring up such a good point there because people talk about our communities and they talk about low voter turnout. And the implication is that there, that it's either a result of apathy or a lack of education or a lack of involvement um, or a lack of knowledge of the political process. And I actually find that that's not the case. What's being excluded from that conversation is that a lot of people don't want to really consent to be governed by politicians that they don't feel care about them. And so they don't vote at all because of that same exact thing that you're talking about. It's like you guys always just show up two weeks before an election and then you disappear and we never hear from you otherwise. And that doesn't animate a person to want to wake up early in the morning to go vote for you. And every single vote has to be earned and not just earned once, but earned over and over again. And so you're right. There's no secret sauce. It's just a grind. It's just about people seeing you out there. It's about people having a conversation with you, a moment with you or a moment with a volunteer of yours where they feel seen and they feel heard. Yeah, definitely. And it, again, it's just such basic, you know, understanding of just human interaction. So, so I just want to shift a little bit to another topic that I know that you and I both have, you know, shared conversation briefly on Twitter about. We both mm-hmm. been about it. Something I know that's been a major issue for you personally. The, 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 just talk a little bit about like what's been going on in Puerto Rico. Um, if you're if folks have not been really following closely, like like folks on social media to see kind of updates, you really wouldn't get the sense from the news that there's still a major ongoing you know issue. You still have um, a couple hundred thousand people at least that still do not have power. Um, mm-hmm. There's several months post hurricane. Um, I know the areas I was in. I don't. I haven't checked recently to see if they their their power estimate restoration was was any quicker. But up in the mountains in Humacao, they were saying they weren't mm-hmm. to get uh, power until sometime this spring. Um, which is still when we think about our power going out here, you know, um, 
if you go in a couple of days without power, it's too long. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I just wanted to hear some of your thoughts just about, you know, the U.S.'s response in Puerto Rico. I mean, what's what's going on in Puerto Rico is completely unconscionable. We're, like you mentioned, there are, there are communities that still months and months later are going without power. Um, people are still supposed to be, many people are still supposed to be boiling their water. And we know that not everybody does that every single time. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have a situation where you have elements of Hurricane Katrina, you have elements of Flint, Michigan, you have elements of, you know, the history of, of colonization in Puerto Rico as well. And it's all really coming to a head. And we have communities where even where resources are starting to go back up online, they're being privatized. And mm-hmm. so now everyone's trying to make a buck off of the basic essential sustenance of Puerto Rican people. And I mean, there's a whole history to it. I myself have um I have been to basically the junta meetings here in um, in New York, which, you know, for people who, who don't know, uh, Puerto Rico was basically handed under corporate control to what is known as the junta board. Um, and it's basically just like a, a bunch of Wall Street folks that now get to govern the finances of the island. And so mm. what they're doing is that, they're, pri- they're shutting down schools. They're privatizing roads and tolls. And now it looks like um, power and water systems are, are going to be brought under the for-profit fold. And, um, and it's, it's, it, many, what many people are really feeling is that they're going to essentially starve out Puerto Ricans so that they can turn it into a resort island. And that's a, a big sentiment that is um, that I hear expressed over and over again by residents um, in in for here in the United States. I mean, it's it, it's a deeply troubling issue. This issue is not fixed, and what's even more troubling is that I. Th- and what I try to echo over and over again is that this is not limited to Puerto Rico. This is this happens in communities, and a lot of these groups are just getting better at it. And it's really just about like setting a pattern for whenever a community is hit with a climate crisis or a natural disaster that they're just getting better and better at rebuild, quote unquote, rebuilding these communities um, in a way that further marginalizes their residents. And so if it happens in Puerto Rico, it can it can happen in New York, it can happen in California, it can happen on on the coast um, of of the United States, it can happen in, in any community that's affected by a natural disaster. And so it's it's a big issue, but also I think it also presents a, a really big opportunity for the progressive movement to propose really big, bold agendas like a Marshall Plan for Puerto Rico, as Senator Sanders, Sanders and Senator Warren have presented, and also um, putting really ambitious proposals on the table like debt forgiveness um, or, or debt cancellation. And, uh, and so just as these private equity groups can use are trying to kind of sharpen their knives in some of these communities, I think it, it, the progressive movement has an opportunity to counter and to opportunity to counter with policies that, um, that are novel and possible. 
Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I absolutely agree about that. And I think, again, like, like, like keeping this all in perspective together, right? Like the, the, the what's happening in terms of the um, different uh, policies and stuff that have been that have been implemented since what Promesa went into effect in well, I guess it's almost two years now. Um, and then mm-hmm. look at just 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 the way decision making and stuff has gone. Um, and I, I like that you pull in the proposals by you know Senator Sanders and Senator Warren. And I think you know if we understand kind of how we can leverage conversations on these issues because though I mean it sh- we shouldn't even have to say well Puerto Ricans are Americans too. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that. You know, communities, marginal communities, black and brown communities tend to be, you know, last forgotten. And considering mm-hmm. your relationship that Puerto Rico continues to be stuck in with the United States, it, it's even more exacerbated, right, than what we see with right. elect, you know, in, in communities like you mentioned going to Flint. Um, we've we've obviously seen reports about issues across the South and in in in, in, in Midwest. Um, so as you as you look at all of your experience, right, and you you think back on what you've done so far, and you look to where you're going, what are some of the first, you know one or two you know few things that you are looking to address when you when you get to congress because we're going to well, when you get there <laughs> yeah that's right that's right um well i think there's a, there's a couple of things so there's some there are some things that i think we're very close to legislatively so i i do think that once we get there there are going to be some fights that have ripened that are ready to be to be had and enacted. So I think one of the big ones is is an uncompromised Medicare for all because I think that this conversation started two years ago. It's been building much more momentum. We've created a lot of political pressure on it, and I do think that the time that we get there, like there's a possi- there's a real possibility to jostle for that. Um, we're starting to see that candidates are winning races based on health care, based on stances to increase access, not just access, of course, because we know that's the that's just the the right to purchase, but, but really to have affordable health care that gives people a dignified quality of life. But I also think that there's some opportunities to push, to really, really push the conversation. And that's some of the exciting stuff that I'm really looking forward to as well. Things like a federal jobs guarantee, looking into debt cancellation, including uh, including um, having a conversation about student debt. And um and so I think kind of moving the Overton window on some of these conversations is something I'm very excited about, um, to have these proposals hit the floor of Congress. And they may take a couple years to, to again, ripen a little bit, but we have to start laying that groundwork now. Um, and I'd be happy to, to use this seat, which again is very safely progressive to kind of stake that claim that a lot of other seats perhaps in in swing districts wouldn't be able to. Um, So that's some of the work that I'm, that I'm excited about. But again, I I also think that there are some fights on the table, tuition free college and Medicare for all, I think are, are, we're very close to getting there. And I think that those fights are very critical because we're already starting to see lobbyist groups come in um, 
and targeting members of the Democratic Party to start introducing watered down, um, more market based policies that are a little more like Obamacare plus than actual Medicare for all. And I think that that at this point, people are very sick of the partisanship and like they just want to be able to go to the doctor without worrying about going bankrupt. And um, and I think that that's still although we have improved a lot with the Affordable Care Act, we're not there yet. And um, and I think that that's once we get there, that that'll be some of the most enactable stuff on the table. I, I appreciate that. And I like that you, you said the federal jobs guarantee, because I've heard that from another candidate this cycle, um, Richard Field, who's running down here in the Georgia 10th Congressional District. Um, actually, I think um, Amy mentioned it when I talked with her recently as well. So um, it definitely seems like that's definitely one of the issues, along with everyone else, every, not everyone else, everything else you mentioned worth exploring. Um, and, and I just... It's just refreshing. <laughs> it's just refreshing listening to people, you know, speak common sense. So, you know, you're able, you get elected, right? You've built this amazing grassroots, you know, uh, support system. How do you stay? How do you stay true? How do you how do you see yourself being able to stay true to the platform, the policies, the people that you say you support once you get inside that Washington that that space? Totally. Well, I think a lot of that starts with how we engineer our run and how we choose to build power. And so when you build power in a way that relies on just the the good face of the candidate, um, I feel like it's much more easy for that candidate to kind of renege and compromise themselves and flip here here and there, um, which is like what we've really seen from I, many, many elected members of Congress. But I think that what we're kind of doing is we built a campaign while, yes, has a lot of good faith in it, really has baked in a lot of um, a lot of dependence on the community. And so I don't take any corporate PAC money. I don't take any lobbyist money. I don't take it. I mean, I'm just not a, a big check kind of candidate. And so because of that, when you bake in essentially that financial dependence on working class people, um, and those people are putting very hard earned dollars on the line, even if it's $20 that someone has put into your campaign, it's $20 that they feel. It's $20 that they notice that they don't have. And, um, and so when when that kind of investment happens, people really pay very close attention to what you're saying and how responsive you are. And so I think there's something baked in there. And then it's the same thing in terms of grassroots organizations, because if we're building a coalition of essentially activists, um, then that means that their organizing is going to be highly dependent on how you are advocating and fighting for them in in office, because if you're not doing it, then they don't turn out. And and the same thing goes with fundraising as well, that if you're if your supporters start to feel demoralized about your compromised positions, it kind of goes in the opposite way as a lot of these establishment candidates go, where they tend to get more rewarded for 
the more they compromise on their principles. But with grassroots candidates, it's kind of the opposite way around where people do vote with their dollars. And the more you kind of compromise on values, the more you really feel that pain. And so I think there's a certain um, there's a certain very hard check that even if it's something that I had wanted to do, um, you really feel those immediate consequences. And having a campaign that has those baked in checks that is not entirely important for candidates to feel when they lose support, not just electorally and not just in polls, but also in the basic functioning of their campaign. Um, so I think that that's like really one of the essential um, one of one of the essential pieces to it that basically it really is our our electoral existence that depends on it. Like, I mean, just yesterday we had what, 16 Democrats basically sell out for this Wall Street giveaway bill. And and like the money talks, they all either accept legal bribes from private equity and Wall Street banks, or they own and actively have a very large amount of um, investments and and a, a direct financial interest in deregulating these banks. And so really what you kind of have to do is just set up those interests in a way that is aligned with voters and not on the, on the other side of the table. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, that's like a really strong place to, to, to bring it on home and leave it. What are some final parting words for, 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 for our listeners and how can people um, learn more about you and get involved if they can? Yeah, definitely. So anybody can get involved. If you're in New York, um, we can always use boots on the ground. We need we need all hands on deck in this race. I think it has national consequences. Um, so you can find us at Ocasio 2018. That's O-C-A-S-I-O. And you can go to Ocasio2018.com or you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Ocasio2018. If you're not in the area, you can always phone bank for us. Um, that's Ocasio2018.com slash call. <laughs> but you can also donate to the campaign. Obviously, that's a, a, a huge need. Um, and we've made this campaign very, very competitive on a fraction of the money that our opponent has. And the reason we've been able to do that has been with people power. We have authentic support in this community. And, um, you know, in a community that hasn't had a primary in 15 years, it it takes a lot more than money just to win. And so um, anybody that can give time or give a few bucks our way, it really goes very, very far. But yeah. And some final words is that like, please everybody run. <laughs> we need a, we need an army of people running as well. Um, because a lot of, a lot of elections are just kind of won by default. And when we have more people running, um, then, then we have more people winning in the progressive movement. And we, so we just had these primaries in Texas and brand new Congress candidates have performed exceedingly well. We, and like everybody counted us out. We had five candidates in primaries in Texas and 
four have moved on. They're either, they've either won their, their district outright or they're in a runoff. And people, almost all of our candidates were underfunded and some of them just trounced their opponents. And I think that um, it's a, that's something that's like really under seen, but we, ha we had some really big dollar candidates in Texas that did terribly, that were backed by the establishment, backed by the DCCC and the powers that be. And they, they just, you know, they sunk, they, they placed fourth and fifth. And so I think we're having a changing era right now in our politics, thanks to technology, thanks to people paying attention and a whole slew of other things. And so I just think it's important for, for everyone to get involved um, because we really need to take our democracy back. Right, right, definitely. Um, well, you know, thank you so much for taking time once again. I really look forward to seeing more of what happens with your campaign and your work continuing forward and we're claiming that win. Um, so keep up the excellent work and, and thank you so much again for joining me. Of course, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, peace. Awesome, bye.